Hey, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Delighted to have you joining me from anywhere and everywhere around planet Earth. Time to go up the down staircase one more time in the outdoor, make sense out of the senseless, and if at all possible, find the obvious buried in the absurd. Let's go. right taking care of business every way taking care of business it's okay I take care of business right here on life 2.0 glad to have you joining me another saturday been doing this what four and a half years now always get a big kick about getting behind the microphone and i've explained this before so much of my week is in production and audio and, and sound and things and that's all well and good uh and working on print projects for people and audiobook projects for people but when i get a chance to kind of rip the cover off a little bit and do this show, I can sit back, relax, have a cup of coffee, watch the sunrise, and spend some time with you. A little bit different this week, I think. Uh, there's a chance that I tend to rant and rave, bloviate, speculate, and often verbally defecate on occasion. But this is not that type of show. Today is a show about memories. And in specific, it goes back to the guy that I've known longer than any other human except my sister. And not sure even how we met. I'm just really glad that we did. I grew up on a street called Fletcher, 2449 West Fletcher Street. If you're a Chicagoan, it is right across where Riverview used to be, the amusement park, which is now like a corporate park where DeVry is and all that type of stuff. But Fletcher was one block off of Belmont. And so we lived right at the corner of Belmont and Campbell Street. And right across the street directly was material service construction yard. So it was a pretty busy place. We lived in an apartment before that. My folks were were uh, just newlyweds and, and I came along in 1958 and I believe we lived in an apartment on Melrose Street. I have no memories really of that, but at some point my grandmother invited my mom and dad and me, as I was just a little baby boy at that time, uh, to come live on Fletcher Street. She had a two flat and the two flat was an exact duplicate upstairs and downstairs. And the yard was frickin' ginormous. There was a garage in the back part of the lot by the alley, but it was a house that sat on two lots, basically. So the house itself was right on the curb of Campbell, and then, of course, the front street was Fletcher, and then the side yard was, you know, you could put another house in there, and unfortunately, somebody did years ago, but it was, it was an expanse, I'm here to tell you. Very rare in Chicago to have a house on two lots on a corner. It was big time. So that's where I remember most of my formative years, right there on 2449 West Fletcher Street. And the block was only maybe, I don't know, 10, 12 houses in total, maybe a little bit more, not very much. And out of those 10, 12 houses, there was only about six or eight kids on the block. And it was, of course, both sides of the street. Now, directly across from us on Fletcher was like a manufacturing plant with a parking lot and stuff that took up half the block. But at the far end, more towards, um, that would be Western Avenue, there was an overpass and there were houses down that way, but it was really the straight block on Fletcher on my side of the street is where I spent most of my time. And like I said, I don't remember the first time I met my friend Gary. And it's interesting to me, and I fumble with this, you're gonna hear this through this, this little podcast today, because I still have difficulty grasping the fact that a guy that I met when I was a kid, you know, I was, five, six, seven, eight years old. 
he's a couple years older than me. He lived at three quarters of the way down the block. That I don't know where we met the first time, but it was inevitable because we're kind of landlocked. You know, we, you weren't allowed to go walking down Belmont Avenue or Western Avenue without any kind of supervision. So at some point we intersected and we were the best buddies ever. And when I talk about best buddies, I'm talking about he's having lunch at my house. I'm having lunch at his house. We both thought each other's houses was the best thing in the world. And that went on for a few years. And the memories are thick as molasses on a cold day. Uh, I, I just have nothing but reverence for that time there. And all that went around that was just vibrant to me. I'm struggling with words here a little bit because it's, when, you, when you get to connect with people who come from your earliest days, I think there is a deep uh, respect there. And, and a sacredness almost to the whole thing. So we had our antics and adventures, which I'll get to here in a little bit. Uh, but in 1966, we moved away from Fletcher Street. And it was devastating. Devastating for me on one level because I sure didn't want to lose my friend Gary because we had a good thing going there. You know, where else are we going to go? And I didn't find out until many years later for Gary it was devastating that he thought he had done something wrong that made me move. You know, when you're a kid, you see this stuff at face value and you take it on and none of it's true, but it becomes true over time. And so for both of us at, at a very tender age as boys, we went our separate ways. And I do remember that my dad said, listen, we can come back every Saturday because his mom still lived at the house. And, you know, it was, of course, it was time for my mom and dad to go out on their own. And we had a splendid, wonderful old Victorian house uh, on Berto Street that I spent most of my life at. My dad lived there for 35, 40 years. Uh, it was a grand place and it was on a corner on an alley with a big lot, not a double lot, but a big yard. And it was a great, great house. Uh, so there was no loss there for me. But we did go back on Saturdays after we moved in uh, 67 and 68, somewhere in there for the next couple of years. Uh, on every Saturday, my dad would go over to spend time with his mom and I'd go with and Gary and I would hang out. And of course we're getting older. And it was good, but it wasn't the same. It just wasn't the same. But so now we're talking basically maybe a five-year, six-year at the most span of time, probably five or four, somewhere in there. It gets a little murky when you start getting decades later. And that was the end of it. You know, after a while, you know, everybody gets older and you kind of go your separate ways. Even though Gary and I attended the same high school in Chicago, it had 4,000 students in it. He was two years older. So he, when he was a junior, I'm a freshman. And you don't, juniors don't talk to freshmen. We're the lower life forms. And same thing as I'm a sophomore, he's a senior. He and his twin sister, Sherry. And Gary has two R's and I believe Sherry has two R's and an I, but I'm not exactly sure. But it was Gary and Sherry, they were the twins. So the last time I would recall ever connecting with him would have been 1969 maybe in that range. And the only reason I know that is because on Saturdays when it was warm out, Gary would come down when I would visit on Saturday and we would play baseball in the yard. But it wasn't just regular baseball. We didn't even have bats. What we did was pitch and catch. And at that time, the Chicago Cubs were everything to us. And that 1969 team, from third to first, Sano Kessinger Becker Banks out in the outfield, probably um, Jimmy Hickman and uh, Don Young and Billy Williams. And on the mound was Ferguson Jenkins and Randy Hundley behind the plate. So Gary, 
who was taller than I was. He was the pitcher and I always wanted to be a catcher. So he became Fergie Jenkins. I didn't even have a glove. I used a hat that I turned sideways so I could use the bill as like a way to catch this ball. And he had the perfect motion down, man, just like Fergie with the leg kick and the whole thing. And for hours, I would squat in the yard and he would throw these balls to me. And that was what we did. We'd call the game just like that. Of course, we won every freaking game, go figure. So that went on. So let's just say it was 1969 was the last time I probably saw him somewhere in there, even though, as I mentioned, we were in the same high school, never saw him there. Decades passed. Time evaporated. People go their separate ways and lives change and, and, and uh, boyhood friends go, go on and live different lives. Every now and again, though, even though I lived in Michigan for 20 years, I would come back to the city and I'd drive past Fletcher Street and I was always hoping to see a glimpse of Gary being there. And I think one time, I don't think I know, one time, man, it had to be in the in the 90s maybe, late 80s, can't remember, I actually stopped at his house on Fletcher and his mom was still there and uh, talked with her briefly. And she remembered me as the kid, the skinny blonde-haired kid who'd sit out front, you know, waiting for Jolly Olly Orange or Goofy Grape Kool-Aid and a bologna sandwich while we were playing G.I. Joe out front. We had a nice talk. And then that was really it. Maybe two, three years ago, now, while I am not a huge fan of the internet landfill and all the shit that goes on in Facebook, there are times where it's just amazing. And there was a connection made and I came across Gary's name and I couldn't wait to reach out. And so we reconnected a little bit and we went out for a beer about two, three years ago and connected then. And then we stayed in touch and kind of back and forth. And he just retired as a mail carrier after, I don't know, 25, 24, 25 years. So we decided this past week, now that he's a retired guy and I'm semi-retired, if that's the way you put it, I still do a lot of work, but it's in my own work, that we should have breakfast. So a couple days ago, we met for breakfast and I'm telling you, I felt like we were back on Fletcher Street on the porch waiting for lunch, even though it was breakfast. I was so excited to see him. And I think what's happened for me, I can only speak for myself, even since I saw him two years ago, is that there's a shift taking place. The older I get, the more appreciative I am of those early days. You know, you go through your whole life and don't think about that stuff. And as you get towards the fourth quarter, at least for me, I start thinking about that stuff and how incredibly lucky we were to live on that short block of Fletcher Street, how incredibly lucky we were to become friends, along with a few other characters on that street. And we had one hell of a time at breakfast. He brought some programs, some early Chicago Cubs games. You can get a hot dog for like 20 cents right? I mean, you get a pack of cigarettes for a dime. You could buy cigars at the ball game. And he had all his uh, programs and he had actually kept the box scores. And it took me right back to a time when you'd go to the ball game, everybody got a scorecard, everybody got a little pencil and you kept score during the game while they were playing at Wrigley Field. Man, nobody does that anymore. It's like bowling. I bowled at my dad for years and each week somebody would get picked to keep score with a big pencil and you, got, you sit down at the desk and you know, you'd keep score for your team and somebody keeps score for the other team. And eventually it's all digital. You just go up and roll the ball. There's nothing inherently wrong with that, but there's something visceral about being engaged at that level where you're actually putting yourself into something and seeing those programs for those games in the seventies and the eighties that he went to hilarious. Not only that, but he'd also drawn some stuff on the cover where he was like, you know, there's a guy on the cover and he drew like what the guy was saying. It's just vintage stuff. And each one of those pieces to me 
was like opening a file drawer of our lives together as just kids. So many memories came flooding back, as they do every time I, I think about that, that time on Fletcher Street, just a few years there. At the far end of the alley, towards Gary's end of it, Bobby Birch lived down there. And, but behind the alley on the Campbell side of the street, there was a lumber yard there with a big fence. And we would sneak into the lumber yard when it was closed and play baseball until it was dark. And I mean, we just threw the ball around a couple hits here and there. It, it was like Sandlot before there was Sandlot literally out there. Just a few of us, a handful playing in this lumber yard. And I'm sure the people that owned it knew we were in there at some point, but we could cut through the boards and get in there and shimmy under the fence or climb over it. And play baseball till it got dark. Never kept score. Didn't need to. Didn't need to. And usually when it got dark, you'd hear Gary's mom, time to come home. And it's time to bug out and go back. And I'd run all the way down before it got too dark at the end of the street. Or the times that we would camp in his backyard. <laughs> and camping, of course, is a relative term. His dad was in the army. He brought back this just canvas giant tent that we would set up at Gary's yard. And it, the canvas doesn't breathe very well. We'd be out there in the middle of summer baking like a couple of squid in there because it was just so hot. And we'd sit in there like we were camping in the yard, you know. And inevitably, his mom would come out with the, you know, obligatory Kool-Aid. You know, Goofy Grape was always a favorite. And the bologna sandwiches on white bread cut diagonally across with one thin piece of bologna. So vivid to me. But these were high times, right? This is like you're, you're, nothing else in the world existed. But of course it did. It was in the middle of the Vietnam War. And Gary's dad was a tough guy. He had uh, been in World War II uh, fighting on the fringes of the Battle of the Bulge, and that will change anybody, of course, uh, especially over time. Uh, and, and I have this image of his dad as this towering figure, broad shoulders, dark hair, cutting a dashing figure, but also... Uh, a guy that you just kind of want to, you know, that commanded respect. And to this day, I have in my mind this image of Gregory Peck. And his dad reminded me, for some reason, of Gregory Peck. A tall, broad-shouldered, uh, you know, formidable figure. And every now and again, when I'm uh, watching TCM and I catch a Gregory Peck movie, I'll actually take a screen grab and send it to Gary and say, hey, your dad's on TV again. And we have a laugh about that. Uh, but, you know, he, he, he went through the dirt and he, and he came out the other side. It changed him. And, of course, um, and I, I guess I can share this here. I mean, Gary and I have talked about it. It's something that wasn't talked about years ago, but PTSD is a real thing. Uh, and, and when you go through what his dad went through, it's understandable why we had to put the G.I. Joes away when he came home. And we loved, of course, playing G.I. Joe. And Gary had all these G.I. Joe guys. And my favorite guy was the like the diver guy. You put that diving helmet on, there was a little little hose you stick in the back, you blow it in there and we'd fill up the wash tubs in his basement and put the guy underwater, blow bubbles and he's out looking for sharks and all that kind of stuff. It was just a fantastic thing. However, when Gary's dad was coming home, all that had to go away because it, it was basically triggering PTSD. We obviously could tell there was something up and Gary's mom would come and say, your dad's coming home, time to put that away. She knew. She knew. So those vivid memories of that time are the glue that keeps me together sometimes in the 21st century. I kid you not. You know, I look around in my office here, which is doubles of my studio, and I realize at some point I've basically recreated my bedroom on Bertow Avenue after we moved from Fletcher Street because it was my, my hideaway. It was my place to go. 
it, it is not unlike, except it's got a lot more windows and it's a little higher ceiling uh, and it's acoustically perfect for radio. Uh, it, it, I have all my stuff in here, all my reminders, my, my memorabilia, for lack of a better term, the things that keep me comforted when I walk in and the headlines are just going crazy. And I want to remember the lifelines and I look to my right and there's all my Batman guys. Because I'm a Batman guy. You know why I'm a Batman guy? Because Batman's superpower was being empathetic to people. He had empathy. He had no, he couldn't fly around like Superman. He didn't have any shooting webs like Spider-Man. He couldn't swim underwater and not, you know, breathe the water like Aquaman. But his empathy came from losing his parents. And I've always thought that was a big deal. So I got all my Batman stuff there. There's a, there's a giant life-size rubber mask of the creature from the Black Lagoon. He got Wolfman on one side and Godzilla on the other. And there's my autograph mitt from Randy Hunley of all people underneath that and a couple baseballs. And I got Deacon Jones helmets and Jerry Kramer helmets. And to my left over here is my whole uh, display of my time in the Coast Guard with my helmet and all the rest and books. And all this stuff comforts me as I get older. In the middle years, I had stuff, but it just was stuff. Now this stuff has deep meaning. Nothing makes it to this room unless there's some serious meaning behind it. And that's what I got out of my, my time with Gary the other day. We both talked about it back and forth, how important those things are. Look, in the, in the age we live in now, overwhelmed by technology. If I see one more freaking commercial about now you need to have a flip phone after they got rid of the flip phones five years ago, I about want to blow the brains out of the television set. I mean, it's just all so too much for me. So I've really limited, obviously, my technical pieces. I text with my kid and maybe two other people. Otherwise, I try to make a phone call to actually have a human voice and connect with. Texting is fine for emergencies, and you know it's good when in, in convenience. But all the technology today, uh, texting and phone calls and Instagram and all the rest of that stuff, couldn't compare to how I would go find Gary on Saturday mornings or any other morning we had the opportunity to spend time together. I'd walk down to his house. I'd stand out front on the sidewalk. And I'd go, yo, Gary. I would do that until either he came to the door or his mom came to the door. And uh, was like, either come up or just chill your bones a little bit, young man. But that's how we greeted each other. You'd stand outside somebody's house and yo-o their name. He'd come down to my end. And my nickname growing up was Butch. And I got to tell you, I have such reverence for that time when my nickname was Butch, because when people call me that, I know they come from this very, very uh, special place a long time ago, and very few people call me that. Gary does, uh, my buddy Tim, my sister, a few people, just a very few people call me that, and when they say that, bam, I'm right back there in the good old days, as it were. But yeah, we'd stand outside and yell, yo There was no texting. No, we didn't text each other. That was our texting. You physically walked out of their house and yo-o until they came out. Just great stuff. I couldn't text with Gary enough and, and create what we had at breakfast the other day for a couple hours, laughing and remembering. You can't do that with technology, but you can do it face-to-face. -face. And how important that is to sit down and do it when it seems to be so difficult to get it done sometimes. Now, good thing he's retired. He can do it in the middle of the day. Uh, we, we're hoping to do more of this and, and, and keep pulling apart the you know, the file drawers and see what else is in there. But for some reason, it is just magical to me. In the world of 7 billion people, I haven't stayed in touch with anybody else that lived on the street. I couldn't tell you where they went or what the deal was, but why him? I don't care why, I'm just glad it is. 
And and yet some of the other peoples on the street, their names were are still so familiar to me. Bobby Birch lived at the end. A guy named we, we called Scrompy for some reason. Is that not a great kid's nickname? Hey, Scrampy, how you doing? Scrompy lived across the street. It was this dirty kid. His shoes were never tied. You know, uh, the Musos lived down at the end of the street, right next to Gary's house. We had a guy in the middle. His family had come from Germany, Manfred. Uh, his dad had a couple of really cool cars, lived in the middle of the block. And in his yard, in Manfred's yard, there was like a little cement built-in pond. And it, it was like in a, in a boat shape. And there was like something in the middle, like a little sp- mermaid or fish or something. And it, was, it could have been more than two feet deep, three at the most, maybe, maybe three at the most. And it's not really built as a pool. It was just a water feature. But we were able to go swim in there in a circle, you know, when it was hot out sometimes. And the hits go on and on. You know, we talked about the house I grew up in on Fletcher Street, which was too flat but had an attic and a, and a basement, both of which were freaking haunted. Of course they're haunted. That side yard, we spent more time with G.I. Joe there and, and, and snow forts and all the rest to last a lifetime. And now there's a house on that property right in the middle, shoved in between the original house and the neighbor. And I often want to stop there and knock on the door and say, do you guys know that the basement's haunted? Do you know that on the side we used to open the window and dump coal down there and now you sleep there? I don't know. They'd appreciate that. And then Gary's house, of course, to me was like the ultimate because he's down the block. And because we lived with my grandmother, there always seemed to be about 20 or 30 people at any given time to eat. And... I'll never forget this. When my grandmother, we, it was, as I said, both flats were exactly duplicated, second floor and first floor. And we moved up and down a couple of times. I don't know why we're going to move upstairs. It's the same place. But when my grandmother was cooking, my mom and my grandmother kind of switched off cooking duties. Sometimes they'd come down. Sometimes we'd go up. Again, there was always seen to be a lot of people there. Maybe that the table was just really small in the kitchen. But we would bang on the radiators. I can still see my grandmother taking a big metal spoon and bang, 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 bang on the radiators, which was the, like ringing the dinner bell on the OK Corral ranch, right? And then we'd go up or she'd come down and that was the signal. And so it was very different at Gary's house where um, it seemed like there was only three or four people at the table, like normal. And it was just a very different scene, a very different energy. And I can recall one time getting there early and uh, wanting Gary to play. And, and you can't play until he's done eating. And so I was kind of shuffled off to the living room and given a big tin of crayons. And the tin was an, an old coffee can that had all the presidents up to that time, which probably would have been Kennedy, would have been the last one on there. Maybe Johnson, I suppose, depending on when it was produced. That's a lot of presidents ago. And uh, giving it something, to, and I colored and stuff. And I remember looking back from the living room into, in, into their kitchen, and I'm like, well, it's like the Waltons. This is the Waltons before there was the Waltons. It was like just a very different scene. So for me, I thought that was the ultimate. But the ultimate really was beyond the kitchen to the back porch. Their back porch overlooked the backyard, had these big kind of elongated windows that you could crank out. And of course, that was the perfect replication of the sea view submarine that was from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea with Richard Basehart in it. And that became like our playground right there. We were diving every day, I'm here to tell you, looking for the wonders of the deep. Until Gary's mom showed up with Kool-Aid and bologna sandwiches. So the gist of this is that 
maybe it's a reminder not to forget where we came from. I've often said, if you forget where you come from, sometimes you'll be sent back to be reminded. And that could be taken in a lot of different ways. You get a little bit too big for your britches, you'll be knocked down a few notches. If you forget where you come from, sometimes you have to go back and remember in order to go where you need to go. And so for me, that that block, which I've lived on for, like I said, just a very short time, is such a huge part of my life. And Gary's as well, as he was he was sharing with me a lot of the memories that he had. And in all of that, I think, again, how fortunate we are to stay connected. Let's, it's got to be 50 years later, half a century, really, that we're able to sit down at breakfast. I think he looks the same to me. Of course, I have hair on my face. I didn't have it back then. But he basically looks like the same guy to me. And I think whenever I'm there with him, which is probably the second time we've seen each other in a couple of years, we go right back to Fletcher Street. We go back to being like a, an eight and a 10-year-old. There's nothing wrong with that, especially in the world today. Can't stay there, but it's good to visit. Always good to visit those places. You know, so the last couple minutes here, uh, I'm just overwhelmed, I guess, with gratitude about how sometimes the universe works. And maybe it's always working. We just don't pay attention to it. But the fact that out of all those kids on that block, we somehow found each other again. And Facebook was a big part of that. And so for me... You know, while I, like I said, while I rail on this technical stuff, there are pieces of it. It's like everything else. Nothing is good or bad. Thinking makes it so. So in our particular case, we're able to connect and do those things. But there's nothing like that sitting down face to face and seeing each other again and remembering all those things and those great memories from just a very, very short time. How precious, sacred, and reverence we must have for that short time that all these decades later, it matters so much. Mm. Try that now. Try finding the moments in your life now that have that. It's difficult sometimes. The world's changed dramatically since those days. It's no less chaotic. But the focus back then was just a short block called Fletcher Street. That was our world. And of course, as you grow up and the world expands, pretty soon you forget that world. But these are the days, I think, at least for me, that I need to recall that more than ever. So next time I see Gary, uh, I maybe have another report for you. But for now... We had a great time, put on the feedback and fine form, laughed, laughed, and laughed, and sat in amazement at the memories that were just showering over us. It was a blessing is really what it was. Nothing but a blessing. Until next time, be well, safe travels. Thanks for listening. Adios.
there's no one to mend all my broken down dreams. I hear a voice deep inside me, tenderly calling to me, saying, Come, come on. Calling to 